Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Jay Stevens Podcast. This is episode number 95, dedicated to a man who won the 1995 U.S. Open and Wimbledon Championships, Mr. Pete Sampras. And as always, thank you for listening and downloading to another episode of the podcast. On today's episode, we have Mr. Cody Gwynn coming on, helping me recap the last dance. And when I was thinking about who to have on as a guest that would be knowledgeable and that would have a lot of fun here on the podcast recapping the last dance, Cody Gwynn was the first name that came to my mind. Cody and I had so much fun recording that we had to split our conversation up into two separate episodes. Him and I recorded less than 24 hours after the last dance ended, so it was fresh on our mind. We recorded on Monday, May the 18th, so part one will be today of our conversation. Part two of our conversation will be on May the 25th, the next episode coming up on Monday, which happens to be Memorial Day. Also, before we get to that, not a long intro today, but I have to remind you, like always, the podcast hotline is always open, 850-462-5442. Once again, the podcast hotline is always open, 850-462-5442. Give it a call. Let your voice be heard. Let's go ahead and take a trip to Greenville, Tennessee, to enjoy my fun conversation with Mr. Cody Quinn as we recap the last dance. Hey, Cody, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Jay, how's it going, man? Pretty good, pretty good. How was uh, your family of things going with everything going on with COVID-19? Good, good. Uh, in terms of work life, obviously, I've not had too much to talk about. I've really had to struggle to find <laughs> sporting events to talk about. So I've, I've definitely went a few new paths, learned about a lot of new, new things. But in terms of, of local and family life, everything's been uh, real good. Uh, I'm actually, a, uh, I guess, someone who's, I found out I've been living quarantine life for the past four or five years. So not too much to change for me. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it. Did your family watch The Last Dance with you? My wife did. My wife was, uh, uh, she, you know, she's become, a, me and my wife are both big documentary people. So okay. we can really watch documentaries about pretty much anything. So, you know, she, I don't think when we first met, she was really a big sports fan. But through documentaries and different things, she's become one. So now all of a sudden she's a big Michael Jordan fan too. So, yeah, she watched all of it with me. Nice, nice, nice. So, no, so she watched like all, all 10 episodes every single night, every Sunday night. It's kind of like a little date night for you guys. Yeah, even stayed up way past her bedtime each night to watch it. I love it. I, I love that. What, was your, what were your thoughts, like general observation after watching everything, after all 10 episodes? What was kind of your thought about the whole document, documentary, docuseries, things like that? Uh, honestly, and again, I've watched a ton. I love documentaries, even if it's stuff that I'm not really interested in. It's always cool to get an inside things, especially when it's almost like uh, documentaries where you get to hear so many different people's opinions. I thought mm -hmm. it was one of the most well put together things I've ever watched. And for someone who obviously grew up idolizing Michael Jordan, but not so much in terms of getting to watch him play live, you know, I, you know, by the time I really started watching basketball on a nightly basis, he was the Washington Wizard. So, you know, I just didn't really have that full feel of how good he was and how good Chicago was. So I've done a lot of research over the years and, you know, pretty much felt like I grew up with it. But then getting to watch this really has a whole new spin on, you know, with this day and age of social media, you always sit back and think, well, there wasn't drama back in the day. And obviously that was not true. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so so that, was, that was cool to see of how many things happen and how it wasn't, 
you know, when you look back on certain eras, you think things are perfect. You thought the Chicago team was perfect and to realize how many things were happening. And yet they were still winning six championships over a, a, such a small amount of time. I thought it was well put together. I don't, there's very limited things that could captivate an audience for 10 hours, especially when you break it up into, you know, a month and a week. And I felt like it was one of those things where every time it ended, I felt myself wanting more, even to episode 10. You know, I'm, I'm so ready for Wednesday to get to watch, you know, the, the rebroadcast of game six. Cause again, I actually think I watched that, but I don't remember it and I didn't, you know, follow it. So I'm so excited to actually watch a, a good nineties basketball game in its entirety because that'll be something new to me and something definitely new to my wife who's never watched. You know, she's only seen the new age of basketball, so she's going to be blown away by watching defense in a basketball game, I'm sure. <laughs> so I, I look forward to that. You know, I'm, I'm ready. I want more. I still feel like I, I put on Twitter, like I want, I want to know about his time with the Wizards. I want to know about him running Charlotte and how all those things have happened. I, I want more. And that's crazy. After 10 hours wanting more, I mean, that just shows how well put together the documentary was and how interesting all of it was to learn. Oh, very, very interesting, uh, very uh, insightful. We got a lot of information. But I think one thing that I, when I was thinking about this after watching last night's um, episode 9 and 10, they talked about Jerry Krause in such a negative light, but he doesn't get credit for orchestrating two three-peats. And if you look at the three-peat, the, the first three-peat, 91 and 93, and then going from uh, 96, 97, 98, even though he had bad people skills, even though he wasn't a personable person, even though, Cody, he wasn't the guy that you would want to hang out with and have a drink with or go to a game with or just hang out and invite him over to your house because he had <laughs> horrible people skills, that man, when it came to being a general manager and orchestrating a team, Cody, he did that in a phenomenal way. Oh, yeah. And I think when I think of great teams, I think if you did a documentary like this, every single general manager, I mean, if you think, say in, you know, 10 years, we get a New England Patriot documentary, Robert Kraft will look like a huge villain in that whole show. So I think it would almost be, I mean, even in Golden State, people are going to look at Bob Myers. Oh, well, you weren't really a good general manager. You ain't got Kevin Durant. So I really think that you know, he got painted in negative light, but I think most general managers would in that scenario. Um, I loved in episode 10 where finally Scottie Pippen, who really had the most disdain for him than anyone actually said, if Michael Jordan's best player and Phil Jackson's best coach, then how can you not say Jerry Krause is the best general manager? And look, he did some amazing things and he did some risky things that it almost besides not going for the seventh title, everything he did worked. I mean, getting Tony Kukoc, everyone hated that, hated that he was so in mm -hmm. on him. He's one of the most underrated players of all time, years before his time. Even Kevin Durant said that was one of the players he tried to fasten his game after, which is crazy because, I mean, that's the best player in the world, saying that Tony Kukoc was one of his inspirations, mm -hmm. you know, to flip Will Perdue and make that Dennis Rodman. Such a massive change. And to recognize when players didn't fit. And that's the biggest thing in basketball, especially back in the early days. You know, even when you look at San Antonio, San Antonio didn't have a great group of players, but it was just puzzle pieces that fit. And with Chicago, they were puzzle pieces that fit. You wonder, you know, if Scottie Pippen was on another team, how good would he have been looked at in the same light would he be better would he be worse same thing with any of those players Dennis Rodman you know played so well in that 97-98 season play less than 50 games in the next two seasons and was done with the NBA nobody else would have him and there's he wasn't really out of his prime so I mean I think Jerry Krause I agree with what uh, Scottie Pippen said that in terms of being one of the best general managers of all time, I think you got to give him credit. It's a shame he didn't go into the Hall of Fame sooner when he was still alive because I, I think a lot of that was that he rubbed everybody the wrong way, especially people in the hierarchy along with him. And I think now looking back, while he was painted in a negative light in terms of 
how people got along with him. I think it's crazy to fathom that he's not one of the greatest basketball minds, the basketball general managers of all time, with just, if nothing else, his ability to find talent and make it work with the group he had. Correct, correct. And I think when thinking about Jerry Krause, people think, oh, he found Michael Jordan. He didn't find Michael Jordan. Jordan was already there before Jerry Krause got the job. But when Jordan and the team, my personal feelings here, I don't like the way that he courted Phil Jackson to take over for Doug Collins. I don't like the way that he courted Tim Floyd to take over for Phil Jackson. But if you go back to that point, he saw something in Phil Jackson. He saw something in Coach. He saw something in, in Robin. And honestly, you have to give credit to Phil Jackson as well because Phil Jackson had to somehow orchestrate all these personalities to be one piece, one unit, one well-oiled machine. And when you think about when you watch these teams – they could have gone way more in-depth into that Supersonic series in 96, um, the 98 series between the Jazz, and talked about how grueling mentally those series were because you mentioned it earlier. Your wife's going to watch this game on Wednesday night and be like, wow, they're playing defense. And I, even think, I think I heard a number today, earlier today, saying that the Jazz didn't score more than 80 points in that 98 finals. Now, I don't know if that's specific and if that's accurate, but it does sure sound like it's accurate because Jerry Krause find, uh, found all these pieces. Phil Jackson, who somehow comes out of this looking like the, the best piece out of all of them, because, I mean, Jordan, he had issues. Pippen had issues. Robin had issues. But between, Phil, between Krause finding Phil and then Phil using his mind, Cody, to put these pieces together, this team for years, and you're, you have a kid, I believe. I don't have any kids right now, but when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old, I can look back and say this Bull squad was definitely one of the best because somehow they got all these guys to work so well together when they had such strong personalities. Yeah, and you know, that's what – a dynasty is, is is pieces of the puzzle and so many people nowadays you know we see so many one and done championships because you have great players in especially in basketball nowadays a great player almost on its own can win a championship I mean LeBron James is a perfect example of someone who is so skilled and so talented that really almost by himself he can at least get to the finals and I think in terms of building a dynasty I mean look you take away everything that Michael Jordan had, I still think he wins at least one championship because that's how good he was. But to win six, it just shows that all the pieces were there from always having, you know, that key shooter. We even heard Steve Kerr talk about it. He wanted to be like John Paxson because what John Paxson brought was that key role, always being ready, always ready to shoot when that ball hit his hand, no matter if it was for two, for three, down low, and play defense. Steve Kerr said, well, that led Chicago to three titles. Now I'm going to fill that role. Boom, there you go. You needed that defensive stopper. That's where Dennis Rodman came in. And even little pieces that they didn't talk a lot about. Bill Cartwright, what he brought to that team down low was so huge because, you know, the first three-peat, was still a, a almost a guard-dominated NBA, and it was shifting to these massive guys, guys yes. like Carl Malone and Shaquille O'Neal and Sean Kemp and these guys who are dominating down low. And, you know, Michael was getting beat up, so they needed someone down low who could at least just match that. And that was Dennis Rodman, Bill Cartwright all coming in. They had plenty of guys who could, who could play different roles, and that was such a key to the Chicago Bull team. And, of course, Michael Jordan's greatest player of all time, no doubt. Without Michael Jordan, Chicago doesn't win any of those but in terms of what a dynasty is, that's filling in all those key parts. And that's what, that's what Jerry Krause's role was, is making sure that all those boxes were checked to lead to the team being great. And so many other teams have had that over the years. And again, you know, people have, have went crazy comparing uh, dynasty to dynasty. And when you look at the Lakers in the early 2000s, late 90s, you know, they did the same thing. It's all Kobe and Shaq. But, man, they had every box checked. They had a point guard who was a, a, a true point guard. Derek Fisher was always ready to shoot, but was the facilitator. Ran that offense perfectly. They had Rick Fox who was taking big shots. So, again, you checked all the boxes. But then you get later into the game and you get to Golden State and you go, well, they, didn't have, they weren't built for a dynasty. 
the first ever MVP for Golden State was Andre Iguodala. He was not a superstar at the time. He played his role so perfectly that people said, well, man, he's, he's the MVP. And that's true. He was. And, you know, back in the day, you almost wonder if the way we look at sports now and you, when you think of MVP, maybe it wasn't Michael Jordan. Maybe it should have been John Paxson once or Scottie Pippen once. But at the time, you know, you just couldn't ignore how big Michael Jordan was. So you always gave him the MVP. But, you know, that's how you build a dynasty in any sport. You have to have those key skill players that, you know, don't make the front page of the newspapers and don't lead off sports center and all those things. But that's how you keep winning. And the guys who aren't making the big money either. You know, Michael Jordan made a great point last night when talking about going for, you know, a seventh title that those guys would have all signed one-year deals because to them it wasn't me, me, me. It was we, and he felt like they were all on the same page and they would have all taken pay cuts, not went for the big money in free agency or the new opportunity to be the guy and would have taken that opportunity to do something that no one's ever done, and it, it just didn't happen. Yeah, man. You know, you're talking about the way that a, the dynasty can be orchestrated and how dynasties are built. Think about this, the Bulls, 96 to 98, without Ron Harper. Think about that squad without a Judd Bushler, who you may say, there may be people listening to this saying, who is that guy? Well, without him, I don't know, I don't know how, they, how far they go. Uh, Luke Longley, a guy that wasn't really talked about very much in this documentary, but they had all the pieces. And I forget if it was Reggie Miller, if it was Rick Smith, one of the Davis boys from the Pacers. I forget. But somebody was talking about how massive and how much girth he had down low and talking about how you got Dennis Robin guarding basically the best low post guy. Well, Luke Long is guarding somebody else, either four or five. And you mentioned it. These guys were huge. These guys, they're not, they're not the build of the, today's NBA and today's athlete. These guys were massive. You have Dennis Robin guarding one, Luke, Luke Long guarding one. Not, he's not, he's kind of got Andrew Bogan. He's there, but he knows his role. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the Ron Harper thing to me is very, very interesting because early on in Ron Harper's career, and you know this very well, was a 20 point a game guy. I mean, right. he, he was a slasher. He, and then he had his knee injuries. And that's one thing that I, I like about him jumpers they have issues with their knees from jumping so much and there are injuries that come because of that and he is one of those guys as well that's a jumper a leaper had injuries to his knees he was able to transform Andre Iguodala you mentioned able to transform transform his game transform his career to be a better version of himself and he basically found himself in the right situation and Ron Harper think about it you got 6'6 six, six Ron Harper 6'6 six, six Mike and then you got 6'8 six, 6'9 six, six, Scotty Pippen yeah. guarding one through three and people wonder, uh, what, would they, what would they do today? Um, they're going to pick you up at the other end of the court and force you to get an eight-second in today's basketball because they're not letting you get the ball up. And that's one thing about that Jazz series that I really wish they pinpointed talked about more because I love defense so much because, man, that Ron Harper addition, Cody, was so big to their success. Oh, yeah. And, you know, again – when you come to a team like that, you know, you, you take that step back. And, and for Ron Harper to do that, it's something, again, you don't see a lot in today's sports is guys who, you know, who knows? Ron Harper, I mean, if you just think of guys in their, their athletic minds, it's hard to say, well, I'm not going to be the guy anymore. I'm not going to be the superstar. I'm going to kind of fill that role. But that's what they all did. And, I mean, you, all those names, you know, guys like Luke Longley, even Bill Wellington and Scotty Burrell, guys who didn't play a lot of minutes sometimes, when they came in, they did what they were supposed to do. And that was one of the key things for Chicago is you know, whether you play 48 minutes or you play three minutes, when you're on the floor, you got to do something for us. And a lot of times it wasn't scoring, is rebounding. It was defending. It was making sure that the guy, you know, a guy is working. Someone is staying busy. So Michael and Scotty could be productive on the offensive end. But really, one of the most notable guys in all that is Scottie Pippen himself. I mean, a guy who was a superstar. I mean, you could argue, looking at all the tape, looking at all the numbers, that he was a top 10 NBA player in history. Yes. Yet he'll always just get the look at he was Robin to Michael Jordan's Batman. But it was a guy who was so fine. You know, I don't want to say he was fine with the role, but 
he wanted to win. They were winning. He wanted to be successful. Now, towards the end of that run, he said, you know, look, man, I'm massively underpaid. And that's 110% true. He was by far maybe the most underpaid player through 97, 98 in history of basketball. And of course, you know, that made good when he ended up going to Portland and everything. But at the end of the day, when you look at the dynasty aspect of it, that's what made them so good. And that's why you'll probably never see that again because six championships nowadays is so crazy. I mean, you got to think, you know, Michael left for a couple of years, but nonetheless, six years, six championships is so crazy because there's going to be at least one or two players that look at free agency, look at the opportunity to be the guy and someone's going to go. And that's how it's going to be probably, I would say for here on out, to be honest, I just don't see another team ever being able to replicate, you know, winning six titles altogether. I mean, if you even jump sports to go to the NFL, what New England has done is so crazy, but that's because really they fill voids. Even when one player will leave, they would fill it right back up. And that's much harder to do in a sport like the NBA where there's so many, you know, gyms and bus everywhere where, you know, Chicago went through a rebuilding stage. I was looking today because I was, I was just trying to figure out, you know, because I remember so many big name guys coming to Chicago and not working. Again, Jerry Krause put together an amazing group of young guys and just they never panned out and then he traded some guys that would just boom right when they left I mean it was almost like all that good I don't want to say luck but all the things that worked out so well for him in the Michael Jordan era didn't I mean Jay Williams you know, I'm a big Duke fan as you can see I thought Jay Williams coming out of college was going to be one of the greatest point guards in NBA history and maybe he would have been but a motor a motorcycle accident derailed all that I mean that's something Chicago can't control so then they lose what was a top five pick so you know going all the way back to when we were talking about Jerry Krause I think he doesn't get enough credit for the amount of talent he drafted and brought in because those guys were all so hype and I mean I think he had who was he had Eddie Curry and, and, and one other player that he wanted to make you know a dynamic duo and if you look at just the tape of those guys before they got to Chicago, I see it. I mean, he, he brought in the best scouted young talent, and unfortunately none of them just worked. So, you know, going back from, you know, looking at the guys who filled in the roles all the way back to Jerry Krause, Chicago is just one of those teams that was so great and then had so much potential. The potential, even to this day, just never seemed to click again. Going a little different route than a Jerry Krause situation, were you a wrestling fan growing up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So do you remember the NWO situation where Dennis Rodman went in and left after game three to go hang out with Hulk Hogan? Do you remember that? I remember it. I, I even remember ordering the pay-per-view because I was so hyped to see Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone wrestle because the, what they were building was a, a tag team main event. I don't remember what pay-per-view it was. I was a big wrestling fan, by the way. I mean, I'm a big one. And, um, <laughs> I had a feeling you were. Yeah. And uh, I remember they were building towards like a pay-per-view and it was Hollywood Hogan and Diamond Dallas Page, and they each got one partner. And of course, Hogan went Dennis Rodman. So it was a secret because, you know, Carl uh, Malone was not running around with <laughs> in Las Vegas during the finals. He was focused. But right after the finals ended, Carl Malone ended up being the secret partner of Diamond Dallas Page. So them two actually got in the ring together, which is crazy because, you know, you see them actually falling down to the floor and playfully kind of going back and forth during the finals. And they end up sort of wrestling each other at the pay-per-view. So yeah, I remember that. I remember that vividly. Cause that was just, I mean, that was a crazy moment. I mean, he came out uh, years before that with the NWO or a year before that with the NWO in Chicago. And that was crazy, but no one expected to see him during the finals. Not even, <laughs> not even his teammates and his coach. <laughs> so let's think about this now. I'm comparing, not trying to compare. Let me, let me take that away. Trying to view what what that situation was, the NWO, Hulk Hogan. Oh, game three, I'm not going to be there. I have something to do the very next day. It's away for the team during the finals. Imagine that happening today. 
Oh, I got it for, I don't know. Okay, I'll give you a great example. The Warriors and Cavs, you can pick any year that they played against each other. Draymond Green says, I, I, I'm going to be away. I got an appearance. Y'all don't know about it. I show up. After it all happens, after y'all see me on TV, or after y'all figure out where I was, you know, social media, TMZ nowadays, man, it's crazy. They're going to find you somewhere. Imagine that happening today. Please, in your own words, explain how you think that would be viewed by the public. By the public? Oh, I know. You would get, you would get <laughs> flamed. You would get absolutely flamed, which, I mean, Dennis Rodman did too. I mean, there wasn't social media, but oh, man, you know, like, I guess at the time, newspapers and yes. ESPN and stuff, they flamed him for it. At the end of the day, though, the way you really look at it is, is it in the finals? And, you know, sometimes when I think about this, I put myself in a coach's, a general manager's mindset where, what do you do? You know, do you take a guy who is so productive and so important to your success and go, yeah, you can't do that. Or do you say, well, he, he came back from Las Vegas, but oh my goodness, he had a, you know, plus 22 plus and you know, you know, positive and negative effect on the team. So I just, I don't even know now in terms of media. Oh man, it, it would be crazy, especially if it was a player that was controversial, like Dennis Rodman was. And it would not go over well today in the social media age. And again, you couldn't really sneak off, you know, Dennis Rodman snuck off in a way because no one knew it was happening until he was there. Right. Nowadays, that would be a lot harder to do because all it would take was one person to spot you and go, hey, there's so-and-so. What are they doing here? So it would not be perceived well by the media. You wonder how an NBA team would handle that. But I'm sure nowadays, contracts and stuff are a lot different where you are obligated to not do anything extraordinary. I know in terms of appearances and going back to wrestling, you know, there's been tons of athletes who've made appearances on pro wrestling over the past or even in mixed martial arts shows, but they're not allowed to do anything. They're not even allowed to do an interview because per their contract, if you're in season, you can't do anything without it being fully approved by your team, your general manager. So I'm sure that might even be like a Dennis Rodman claim in the contract where everyone has that now, if you're uh, probably anybody. So I, you know, I'm sure the end the contracts were a lot simpler where as long as you were at the game, we're okay. Yeah, um, this team, it's been very interesting for people. I think you and I are the same age, but people that are younger than us, the 15, the 20, maybe even 25-year-old middle-age adults or mid-20 adults that didn't get to see Michael Jordan, didn't get to watch Michael Jordan, didn't get to know anything about this Bull squad, and all they know is Kobe and LeBron. Not anything against those two guys, Kobe in his own right, LeBron in his own right. Very, very talented, once-in-a-lifetime generational type of talents. But Michael Jordan is different. How do you think that the younger the younger people, the young, especially, gosh, you've got probably kids 10, 8, 9 years old, dad, let them stay up. Hey, come watch this. Y'all going to learn something tonight. Y'all going to learn about the best player of all time, and dad's going to go off about Mike. <laughs> Michael Jordan, to young guys, honestly, Cody, he's – He's a different kind of cat because we see Michael Jordan. You think about a guy right now punching some well, punching somebody in a practice. It's all over ESPN. It's all over TMZ. What are you fighting for? I, I played football in high school. We got in fights in practice. Nobody cared. Nobody did anything. It was kind of like a thing that you did. Two a days during the dead heat of summer in August, you, you, you fight. It's not a big deal. But you got to see the fight of Michael Jordan. You got to see the intimidation of Michael Jordan. The Michael Jordan telling Reggie Miller to call him Black Jesus. That Michael Jordan. The Michael Jordan that no matter the moment, no matter what was going on on the court, Michael Jordan is going to show up no matter what. I think a lot of young people nowadays, especially those that fall into – the trap of only knowing what they know. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Because when I was younger, I only knew what I knew. And I didn't have the internet to go back and watch YouTube and watch uh, and read different articles that came out 15, 20 years ago to see things that happened. But the younger generation, not just Michael, 
but just that whole Bulls in the 90s basketball, they're get to, getting to see, Cody, how hard it is and possibly how much e- – someone's going to hate me for saying this – possibly how much easier it is now due to the technology and how advanced we are um, with health and medicals and things like that. When it comes to the younger generation – how, if you were, say, 10 years old, would you look at Michael Jordan now versus how you did back then? I know I'm asking you to use your, your brain imagination. I know, you're not, I know quarantine may have your brain a little off because it has everybody a little odd right now. But just imagine, go back to 10-year-old Cody. How would 10-year-old Cody view Michael Jordan if he, had never, if he didn't know anything about him before? Uh, I think I would have been blown away just by watching the clip and especially with how different the game was. I mean, if you are a teenager now and maybe just now starting to develop some basketball skill and the way you play the game. I mean, what's, what's the first thing? I mean, I coach, I've coached seven and eight year olds and then 10 and 11 year olds and 11 and 12 year olds. I've coached that age group a lot. So one of the first things they want to do is shoot threes. And that used to know, I remember being 10. I remember being that age and wanted to shoot fadeaway jumpers. I wanted to back down in the, in the paint and, and fade away. And I wanted to shoot runners and I wanted to try uh, switching hands in midair on my layups because that was what <laughs> Michael Jordan was doing. And now everyone wants to see how far they can shoot it. Even if they cannot shoot, you know, even if they can barely hit the rim, they're like, Oh, watch this for three and it hits nothing. So the game has changed so much. So I think if people who are being introduced to Michael Jordan are also being introduced to a whole new, I mean, it's, it's literally almost a new sport, the basketball yes. that's been on yes. TV. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I look, I hope there's a lot of everyone from eight year olds to people about to go play in college, about to play high school ball or currently playing high school and college ball really watch the game on Wednesday so they could see that there's no plays off. There's, there's no such thing as a run out. You know, if a guy gets a steal at the three point line, they don't just go, Oh, well he got it. We're going to let him score. We're going to go switch it up. I really hope that people will watch the way the game's played and how, you know, they have full court one to, you know, man-to-man defense, even if it's just point guard on point guard, the whole way up the floor, how they, how John Stockton wouldn't let guys breathe and how the entire game from, you know, the 11 minute 58 second mark right after the tip off to the final minute, how Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman are going at it, how they're battling for position. It's, there's nothing lazy I look forward to seeing that because, I mean, to a lot of people, that's going to be a sport, a version of the sport they have never seen before. And I'm not going to – I'm not one of those people who's going to trash today's basketball. You know, I'm a huge basketball fan, so I love the game so much that any sport has to adapt, and basketball has. It's adapted to a whole new level game where it's less physical. Guys are more athletic. Guys are bigger. Guys do things you've never seen before, and therefore that attracts a new level of fandom where now you could argue that, you know, basketball is – maybe the most popular sport in America. I'd still say football is a little bit above it, but nonetheless, basketball and football have both destroyed baseball over the last 10 years. And that's because of the notable names in the NBA guys like LeBron James, guys like Kobe Bryant. But I think that, I think there's a young group and especially myself, if all, if all I knew was today's basketball, I would be shell shocked to see what I've seen on this documentary where, you know, it was each game felt important where each possession felt important where guys were playing 44 to 48 minutes a game. That's absurd. You know, we don't see that anymore. I mean, who, I guess was it uh, James Harden has led the NBA in minutes, I think, over the past few years, and he's barely getting 40 minutes a game. Yeah. And that's just because Houston plays small ball. I mean, if they had a normal team, he would play less. So when you think about that, Jordan consistently in blowouts even was still playing 38 to 40 minutes a game. And if it was a close matchup, he's playing the whole game. Him and Scotty both were playing the whole game. Again, it's so different. 
And I think to a lot of people, they will adapt. I hope some people see that and change their game a little bit where, man, it'd be awesome to see things like mid-range jump shots come back, to see, you know, runners make a little bit of a comeback where it doesn't always have to be guys trying to dunk on people. Because, I mean, we just see a lot of either A, just bad plays, bad possessions now, or you see guys get hurt because they try to do things that are crazy and acrobatic. And of course you see the cool ones on sports center. What you don't see is the <laughs> abundance of torn ACLs and MCLs and guys getting hurt every single season. I mean, it's crazy that we are in the day and age of playing 34 to 36 minutes a game and only playing about 70 games per season for notable players. Yet there's more injuries in today's NBA than by far back in the late nineties. And I think you could credit that to guys doing things nowadays that just really shouldn't be humanly possible. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Let's think a little bit about the dream team going back. I think it's what's episode goodness. This is early on three or four. Maybe I'm not exactly sure, but the dream team, Isaiah Thomas didn't make it. Not a, not a knock with his skills, just for the chemistry there. It, and for the players over there on that squad, it sure seemed like that John Stockton being there, especially for the Carl Malone aspect. If you imagine Carl Malone there without John Stockton, you get a different Carl Malone because that's his running mate. They played, he played almost every season with John Stockton. So it makes a whole lot of sense. But that team put together, I don't know how you were when you were younger. I don't know how you were when you were thinking about and viewing the Dream Team, Dream Team 2, the 96 team. Let's be honest now. That 96 team had nothing on that 92 Dream Team. It was nothing even close. But that team put together, I think it's amazing that – it took that early, I think it was Chuck Daly, the head coach, their early run with the, the college select team. Where that, I don't, and I forget, sorry, my memory, I've been watching so much stuff lately, I forget what was on the docuseries, what wasn't. But I think you know what I'm talking about. When they, when they had Chris Webber, Bobby Hurley, they all played to get, they all played the dream team. Chuck Daly was in there. Michael Jordan didn't really play that much. Then all of a sudden, they lose, and Chuck Daly says, okay, before the media comes in here, turn the scoreboard off. Like, yeah. wait, excuse me? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? But Chuck Daly knew something about that team, and then once that team was put together, it was literally a well-oiled machine. We all knew about Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan, when you pair with Magic and Larry, it, it was, once again, him showing him, guys, Cody, this is my time. This is, this is my league now. You guys had your time in the 80s. Michael ran the 90s. He already had his coming out party in 91, but 92 through the rest, nobody could touch Mike. Yeah, and you know, actually, I, I looked that up, and I actually I meant to actually talk to my wife about that because they didn't talk about the college select in the documentary, and I think that's because the Dream Team hates that story because they <laughs> say that the game was fixed. That's what they all say, but that's never been talked about or proven. That's what just they all like say. the flu game. It was a flu game, not poison pizza. Right. It was all a different story. <laughs> so, so they didn't talk much about that. They talked about the big scrimmage in which Michael Jordan really just took over. But no, the Dream Team is one of those things where you know when you look at Isaiah Thomas. It was the 110% right decision. He, the team camaraderie, the team chemistry, it was already on shaky ground to begin because everyone was so competitive. It was. But I, think after, I think after a while, their competitive nature brought them all together where they go, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're about to all be teammates, man. This is going to be crazy. And it turns out, you know, it was. So I, I think Isaiah Thomas being there with just the way that he played and that Detroit team played the game, it would have changed the aspect on that team. So I think you made a great point with Stockton and Malone. I mean, you almost think that's a package deal. When Carl went to L.A., he was nowhere near the same Carl Malone. No, granted, you could say he was older or whatever, but no, it was because he was not in that situation where he had one of the greatest point guards, one of the greatest true point guards of all time. As and might I add real quick, Cody, not, not to cut you off, 
not a, that's not a knock against Gary Payton because Gary Payton was on that Lakers squad in 04 when the Lakers lost to the Pistons. Right. That's not a knock on Gary Payton at all. Gary Payton, the glove, Mike can say whatever he wanted to say about the glove in the 96 series. The glove really did have a major impact on Mike in that series. But John Stockton and, and, and package deal, very well put. Those two guys together, it was a package deal, almost like a, like a, a glove that fits your hand perfectly as soon as you put it on. And so, yes, he was out of his element. Gary Payton, great. But John Stockton and Carl Malone, that's why we say Stockton to Malone. It's always ingrained in our brains. Right, and Gary Payton is a different type of point guard. I mean, if we're going to – I hate when people talk about greatest player of all time in each position because, man, I need more details. So greatest <laughs> defensive point guard of all time, boom, there's, there you go with Gary Payton. Greatest passing point guard of all time, boom, you have John Stockton. So imagine your running mate for 10, 15 years being a great passer, and then you're with a guy who's a, a great defensive player, but then more so maybe a scorer and a facilitator than he is a true find and open guy point guard. And then again for Carmelo, you're not going to be the first option or the second option playing alongside Kobe and Shaq. So he wasn't the same. But again, at the time of the Dream Team, they were a package deal. They were going to have chemistry when they're on the floor together. You know, they were going to be on the same unit, whether that was with the first team or maybe you're playing behind guys like Charles Barkley and them. You come on the second team. So your guys are getting rest. And here comes, you know, the second team for another country. And you're going to get shot to talk to Carmelo. So that chemistry alone made them so tight. And I think after the inner uh, squad scrimmages between Team USA when, you know, Magic and MJ used to go at each other and Larry Bird was doing his thing, I think they all realize that, man, if we are able to form a unit of all of us being this competitive and we shift that to everyone else, I mean, you even heard them talking about, you know, playing against Tony Coach the first time and how they just kind of, you know, guys like Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson had nothing to do with Tony Kukoc, but Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen said, hey, uh, we want to teach this kid a lesson. So they're like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> so it was almost like you take that bully mentality that so many of those great players from the 90s had, form it to one big bully team. And, I mean, my goodness, you know, you can make so many dynasty comparisons and player comparisons from then to today. There's not a team in the world ever that would have would have been able to really compete truly with the dream team in turn especially if you played under those rules there's not a team in the world that could compete with that physicality and with that skill set and at the end of the day with that competitiveness with that group of guys it would have taken something amazing to really throw them off their game it would have taken something amazing and i love that not just that team was put together at that time i seriously love that the team knew who was in charge of the team, who, who, the leader, who the leader was. And Michael Jordan, his ego on the court, knowing that I am the man. I love the trash talk. You know the behind the scenes you got to look at, see in the, in the locker room or um, the, guy with the, the white guy with the Jerry Curl that was playing quarters. I mean, I love that behind the scenes stuff about Michael Jordan. It makes him fun. And I can only kind of imagine what kind of those card games and playing poker at nighttime or Charles Barkley and, and Mike going to play golf a little bit. I would love to see that camaraderie and that the team just coming together and being one and being one well-oiled machine. And then also you have guys like a Clyde Drexler, a Chris Mullen. These guys are the guys on their team and they say, Hey, I don't care how good I am. This is Mike. <laughs> this is Mike's team. And another thing about that summer, that's very, very interesting. I know I'm going a little bit off away from basketball now, but let's give Mike some credit. He knew that it was going to be time for him to leave basketball before he left basketball. And so in the summer of 92, before that Olympics, he went to his trainer and said, hey, I need to get my body ready for baseball. He's like, hold on, Mike, you're playing basketball. You have the Olympics coming up. What do you mean you're going to train for a different sport? Well, Mike was always looking at ahead. We People marvel about guys right now looking ahead, looking to the future. Mike had the foresight. Mike's like, hey, 
I, I know I know I'm gonna come back for a three beat. I know it's a little bit different. I can't really leave now. I can't really leave basketball now for the because the Olympics is here. I know I have to wait a little bit. But Mike had the foresight and the ability to look ahead and say, Hey, I know coming up, it's gonna be very, very soon. I'm gonna be leaving basketball. I am mentally worn down. I am 29 years old. Mike retired for the first time at 30. And when he retired, he already had his next act lined up. And I'm like, hey, Mike, man. Transfer some of that to us right now, some of the younger people, because we look at we look at some of the guys now that retire, Andrew Luck, a Patrick Willis. I'm going to, I'm not going to football now, but do they really have a plan? Or is it like a spur of the moment thing? We don't give Mike enough credit, Cody, for looking ahead and saying, "Hey, it's time for me to leave," and he left at the right time. It was unfortunate that he left when his dad passed away. Right, and you know, I, I think for some, and you mentioned a lot of NFL guys. You know, I think it's almost admirable to retire when you're just kind of over it. You're just kind of done. There's no point for so many athletes. And we've seen this a lot in sports, way too much. Guys just play. And I think uh, who Michael Jordan referenced said, I think he said Patrick Ewing told him, you know, I would be carried off the court. And Michael said, that's not going to be me. And I think it's great for so many athletes to have that mindset. You don't see that a lot nowadays because, I mean, Michael Jordan, I think one of the things to him was how competitive he was. I think he needed a break. But he knew himself well. He said, yeah, I'm not going to be able to sit at home, though. So let's do something. <laughs> let's do something else. Let's go play baseball. It's a little bit, you know, mentally less taxing, I would think, probably playing. You know, you're not always out there. You get a chance to be around a different group of teammates and just a much different sport. And he got himself in shape. And look, you can make the argument that, you know, how an alternative universe would look if the baseball strike never happened because there's a good chance. I mean, Michael would have got to play uh, at least a few major league games and you know, how that would have – changed the way he felt about baseball you know was he already growing tired of it then or was he just starting to love it was he tired of being in the minors was he if he would have got caught up to the white Sox, would it had changed his whole opinion and he would have said yeah i'm gonna make i'm gonna have another good push at this and try to be on the big league team a whole year we'll just never know but i think michael always had that foresight to where he he didn't want to play when he wasn't going to be all in and at the same time he always knew that he was not going to be able just to relax just to be able to sit at home to just Focus on anything else. So the first retirement, done with basketball, go to baseball. Second retirement, okay, we're going to relax a little, but we're going to start looking at being on the other side of basketball. When he left the Chicago Bulls the second time, he started talking to a lot of notable people on trying to figure out how he can become, you know, a you know basketball operation guy or even a general manager somewhere down the line. That used to be, you know, he wanted to be a general manager for a long time. Turns out they were like, well, you know, how about you come join the Wizards in a front office role? But, you know, hey, we, we could use a, a really good shooting guard or small forward if you want to play a couple <laughs> more years. There that was, and he got a chance to kind of get his toes wet there, didn't work out, retired from basketball, but then knew he still wanted to have that inside role, was able to buy a stock in the, in the Charlotte Bobcats at the time, and that's where he's been ever since. So I think he's one of those people which, you know, I know people in my life that are very similar in terms of you just don't have the ability to say, I'm, I'm going to chill. I'm going to relax. I'm not going to do anything. To me, me personally, that's like my dream. My dream is to have nothing to do all day for like 300 <laughs> days in a row. That's like my dream scenario. But for a lot of people, they need something to occupy their mind. They need something to always have their creative or competitive juices flowing. And if you don't, you just, you don't feel good. You almost get depressed. You get in an odd state of mind where you feel like nothing. And I think Michael is one of those people where he just, I mean, you even heard him I, episode two, maybe even episode three, where he talked about being hurt and how it was so mentally taxing on him to not be able to do anything, to not be able to play. And then they wanted to shut him down and he couldn't do it. And I mean, Michael's a smart guy. And at the time, he may have not had the inside knowledge that he did years later, but 
he, I mean, it was a, the right move to sit out those final games and try to get a draft pick. That was the 100% right move. But in his mind, he needed to play. And it was competitive. It was him just, you know, wanting to show the front office that we're not going to accept losing. It was all those things. I'm sure nowadays he looks at Charlotte and goes, if we lose these last three games, we may get a top five pick. Boom, we're, we're losing these next three games. <laughs> so I think in terms of, you know, his mind and things, he, I think he's just one of those guys where he always has to have, he always has to have something to keep that mind and keep that competitive going. And I mean, you even mentioned as far as on the plane rides, it never showed him sleeping on a plane or a bus. They were playing cars. They were smoking cigars. They were talking, playing quarters. This was not a guy who, la- who liked to just relax. And I think they made it very clear that once it got to the point where he couldn't even go out and do stuff, he couldn't even go out with his teammates. I don't know if you read anything off the, on The Athletic. I subscribe to The Athletic. B.J. Armstrong is writing articles for each episode, and he wrote a column saying in that last little stretch that when the Chicago Bulls team would go out to dinners and go out to movies and do stuff as a team, Michael Jordan couldn't come because people would somehow figure out where they were, where they were going, where they were going to be and swarm. So Michael couldn't go. He would have to be in his hotel room. He could never go out to dinner with them. He could never go to a movie with them. If they would make a public appearance or, you know, just, just want to go to like a mall and just get a couple things while they were in a town for a night. And they were, you know, if they played a game or just stuck there for one more day, when they would go to these places, Michael couldn't come. Because people, even then, in the very early days of the internet, would figure out where he was and where they were going to be and would swarm the team and make it an unsafe environment. So, I mean, you got to just think that's, that's not a life. I mean, we can envy his skill. You could even envy his financial status. I don't think there's anyone who would really envy that sort of lifestyle. Man, oh man, that, my friend, was a lot of fun come back on monday may the 25th which happens to be my dad's birthday happy early birthday dad and for all of you jokesters out there that love to joke around because you know jay loves to joke around as well no, this is not my opportunity to say happy birthday to my dad and not say it to him on his birthday. I will say it to him on his birthday. Monday is Memorial Day. It is the first time on Memorial Day. I will not have to work in possibly three years for Memorial Day. My dad's birthday, part two of our conversation, the one that Cody and I had. It's on the same day, so it's a great day, a great time, a great weekend, a three-day weekend. Looking forward to it. I know a lot of us are looking forward to it. Hey, let's enjoy this extra time with our family because we don't know how much time we have with our loved ones here on God's Green Earth. Once again, come back Monday, part two of the conversation that Cody and I had recapping the last dance will come out Monday, May 25th on Memorial Day. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jay Stevens Podcast. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at jstevens07. If, you're, if you are not on Twitter and you would love to connect with the podcast, send your emails to jstevenspod at gmo.com. Remember to always subscribe, rate, and review. It's a great way for people that search for new podcasts to listen to to come across this one. There, remember to always get the word out about the podcast via word of mouth. The things that we enjoy in life, we are more willing and somewhat wired to tell other people about. So no matter if this was your first episode or if you have been listening since episode number one, be sure to people know about the podcast. This has been episode nine, five of the JC Wins Podcast. I'll see you next time. <laughs>